The gospel lesson is taken from Matthew's gospel, chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. This is the prayer that the Lord taught his disciples. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. The word of the Lord. A couple of weeks back, I started a series on the Apostles' Creed. Now would be a favorable time, I think, for me to reprise some of the reasons that I decided to preach this series. I found my motivation, actually, to preach this series from an email that I received from a friend of Westminster who stated that she did not understand some of the statements in the creed. And she also insinuated, though she did not say it outright, that she saw little need for such creeds. And of course, we use a creed every Sunday of some sort, either the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed or one of the biblical creeds. Let me uh, remind you that creeds are found in the Bible. The most significant creed in the Old Testament, of course, is what is called the Shema, which is a Hebrew word that means to hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And Israel was to remember that vis-a-vis the surrounding cultures that were polytheistic, idolaters. And then we have creeds in the New Testament, one of the most profound creed, surely, is that creedal hymn that's found in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And we use that here in the service. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then we have this wonderful and marvelous statement as to who he is. There are other creeds in the New Testament. The shortest one, and maybe the earliest one used most frequently, was consist of only... Three words, Jesus is Lord. The faithful sayings of Paul in the pastoral letters are also creedal statements. And there are a number of others found in Romans in various places. So we have a biblical example uh, to use creeds. It's part of uh, biblical religion. And in some ways it's kind of sad that that element is not employed by many of our churches that claim to believe the Bible the most. The Apostles' Creed comes from us, uh, comes to us, not because it was written by the apostles. It was not. There is a story or a legend that says that each apostle of the twelve wrote down one statement in the creed and was combined and bequeathed to the church through the ages. It actually is based upon an ancient baptismal creed in the second century. Scholars call them symbols. 
a summary of Christian teaching, and before you could receive baptism as an adult, you went through uh, these uh, statements, and there was an elaboration of them in teaching, and it prepared you for baptism. And therefore, the Apostles' Creed in particular is a baptismal creed, and rightly used on those times when there is a baptism or any Sunday that another creed is not used. So the Apostles' Creed is probably the most familiar creed to Christians, I won't say throughout the world, but throughout the Western world and, well, much of the world. Some Eastern Christians prefer the Nicene Creed. So the Apostles' Creed and other such creeds are a way that the people of God through the centuries, and I would remind you, through the centuries, have uh, confessed their faith in worship, have used it pedagogically to teach the Christian faith. And of course, John Calvin treats the creed in his institutes along with the Lord's Prayer and it's very prominent in his Institutes of the Christian Religion. We happen to use that form of the creed in our church that used debts and debtors rather than uh, trespasses and those who trespass against us. So uh, that kind of marks out the Calvinistic tradition in a sense. And today I want to continue preaching from the creed and uh, my text is the Lord's Prayer. And as you see, we will employ that to demonstrate uh, some of the uh, very important statements that we find in the Creed. And today it is, I, I believe, was the first sermon, how belief is formed in the individual and ultimately saving belief or faith is a gift from God. And I also took up Last Sunday, the phrase, I believe in God, the Father. I didn't do much with the Father, but I did a lot with God. As, if you will, the ground and source of all being. Uh, he is ultimate reality. And uh, all that we see and experience, we believe ultimately finds its ground in God. And so therefore we come today and I want to focus upon the phrase, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Again, I want to start with the Lord's Prayer, the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples. This time I want to look then again at Matthew 6, 9 through 13. Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Now it was customary for a rabbi to teach his disciples a prayer, a prayer that, that they prayed. And in this case, Jesus had prayed this prayer or something like it many times. And he taught his disciples to pray this prayer. And by implication, all disciples through the centuries. It is called by some the Our Father. It is called in our circles the Lord's Prayer or the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. And I want you to look at how it starts. It's very profound. It simply starts out with our Father. Our Father. A, 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 uh, two words representing a phrase that is full of meaning. The Our Father. 
And this prayer really differentiates Christians from every other type of religion. No other religion, if they understand, cannot really pray this prayer. It is unique to Christians. And I hope you see why in just a moment. Jesus teaches his disciples then to pray our Father. God is addressed as Father in the Creed. Well, for sure, many religions, ancient and modern, sometimes refer to God as Father. There is no question about that. But in this case, though, Jesus puts a qualifier in front. Our Father, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, this Father is identified as being the Father of Jesus Christ. And since we share in Christ through faith, we are to pray our Father. We are God's children through adoption in the name of Jesus Christ. So we approach God as Father, but as our Father, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is important for a couple of reasons. Sometimes earthly fathers or even the ancient deities that were referred to as fathers were not very nice. They were not very nice. Zeus was not very nice. He was entirely indifferent almost to the human race. He was only concerned with the human race if they got in his way. So the ancient Greeks, for instance, tried to stay out of the sight of the gods because they knew that their gods were petty and jealous and envious and quarrelsome. And so, therefore, they tried to stay out of their way or get on their good side. They may offer up a sacrifice to appease, for the god was peevish and needed to be appeased. That's not much of a father. And of course, sometimes our earthly fathers are not much fathers either. We can be stubborn. Uh, we can be uh, unforgiving, unrelenting, harsh. Paul has to counsel fathers and parents uh, not to provoke their children, for instance, because we can do that. I had a young lady, and I've mentioned this before, but it's, it so stands out in my mind some years ago. Uh, she had a relationship with a, a local college or institution, and she ran some of the athletic department, uh, maybe the equipment side and so forth. And uh, we were having a Bible study, and she said, uh, Pastor, I hope you'll excuse me, I'll not be here next week for the Bible study. And uh, I didn't ask her why. I thought, well, she has a personal reason. People often say that. But she went on to say, it'll be Father's Day, and I don't want to be in church. She said, I was abused by my father. And, and you'll probably preach a sermon on fatherhood. And she was right. And so she said, I don't want to be there to subject myself to that. I said, well, fine but I hope you don't confuse it with the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, some earthly, imperfect, maybe even cruel individual who abused you. So some of our earthly experiences with Father, we may get confused 
But I want you to understand that when Jesus uses our Father, he has something entirely different in mind than what some of you may have experienced even in your own life. And uh, this fatherhood of God is absolutely crucial for us to understand who God is. The fatherhood in this sense is synonymous with compassion and mercy. When Jesus teaches us to pray our father, he's talking about a father who is full of compassion, full of mercy. All the way through the Old Testament, a very special word is used to talk about God's covenant relationship with his people. It's the word hesed. It means loving kindness. Loving kindness. It's a dear and precious word. And when Jesus teaches us to pray our Father, he has in mind the loving kindness of this Father who showed his loving kindness to Israel over and over. Maybe you recall that story of how, I believe it's in the prophet Isaiah. I'm pretty sure that it is. Where God says he comes uh, to a trash heap, a rubbish pile. And in that rubbish pile, he finds a baby in the afterbirth that's been abandoned. And he picks that baby up and he cleans it off and washes it gently and makes it his own. And he says, that is Israel. This is the kind of father that Jesus taught us to pray to when he said our father. Or maybe you remember the story in Luke chapter 15 of the parable of the lost son, or as I used to know it by the prodigal son, where this oriental father, who if to go by the stereotype will be a harsh, unrelenting father, severe in his punishments and judgments. But this father, what, when he loses his son, when his son goes off, and wastes his life and his living in the most horrible kind of debauchery. And yet he is welcomed home with loving arms. This is a father who goes to the hillsides and looks for his son every day with open arms. When we are taught to pray our father, this is what the creed has in mind. For it is the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, my friend, I hope you understand that you have a welcome Uh, to this father in Christ. His arms are open to you. He says through his son, come unto me all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me for I am meek and lowly. Jesus is the very representation of this father. He is the good shepherd as you heard in the lessons today who goes after the one lost sheep. Oh my friend, think what that means. And what a welcome you have. He is also, though, God the Father Almighty. This Father is no ordinary Father. I know my own impotence and limitations in life. I I, I hear the needs of you and people and my children and on and on and on. And often I can do nothing about it. I do pray. Some think, and I do, that's enough. But I wish I could just solve your problem. I can't. 
I hear so many stories. And uh, I have been in situations in my life where I've seen some desperate situations. And if I could change a person's thinking or mind that's going to lead to destruction, I, I, I would. But I have no power. I have no power. But when Jesus reminds us that this Father, our Father in heaven... This is a father, too, that is almighty, as the creed says. He is almighty. When Jesus gave the great commission, remember, he is the representation of the Godhead. He says, all authority is given unto me in heaven and earth. Only Christ has that. That's the great head and king of the church. He is almighty. He is no ordinary father. He is the one who is able to deliver Egypt of Israel from Egypt and slavery and bondage. He is the one who can part the Red Sea. He is the one who can give victory to Israel. He is the one who can set King David upon his throne and enable him to establish that throne. He is the one who can give promises through the prophets that a greater prophet would arise sometime in history. And we believe that great prophet was Jesus Christ, who indeed would be the final revelation of who God is. This is the Father Almighty. This is the one who is able to accomplish his purpose. As it says in the book of Daniel, to do his will in the armies of heaven and earth, he is the sovereign Lord. Oh, this is one who can answer our prayers. That's why Jesus goes on to teach his disciples to pray for their needs. Notice what he says. Give us today our daily bread. I have no guarantee that I will finish out this day with my daily bread. I have no guarantee. And as you get older in life, you realize how fragile, how wispy life is. And how fast it goes. We can do nothing with space and time, if you will, and maneuver it or manage it or overrule it. But this is one who can give my daily bread as he gives me each day. I can pray to him for that. This is the one who can forgive my sins when no one else can. I recently talked with a person who was extremely guilt-ridden over their sins. No power in me. No power into me to actually say your sins are forgiven. But there is one who can say your sins are forgiven. And that is our Lord Jesus Christ who represents the Father. I can assure you that in Christ your sins are forgiven. But I cannot in my own name or power forgive your sins. That prerogative is God's alone. That prerogative is a sovereign prerogative. Because the Lord is almighty, he can forgive our sins through Christ. All authority, he said, is given to me in heaven and earth. God indeed is sovereign. The last phrase here is maker of heaven and earth. 
All things, the scripture says, through Christ are made by him and for him and through him. A sermon I preached about a year ago, I'm sure that you remember quite well. <laughs> what this means is that that one who has made all things has not left life up to be a roll of the dice. It's not by chance that this world is. It has a cause. It has a reason for being. It, it just isn't just pure chance. He made heaven and earth. What you see with your eyes and what you taste with your mouth and smell and feel and experience every day in your life is a real world made by that one who is able to create all things. All things are undergirded by him. He is the foundation and ground of being. And he has made all those things that we see and those things that we cannot see. He is the creator. Now this means then, the Apostle Paul can use this doctrine of creation and say that God has given you all things richly to enjoy. With thanksgiving. Isn't it a wonderful thing, Some of, almost all of us will go home this afternoon, very soon, to a meal. Isn't it wonderful to go home and to bow your head and give thanks for what you're about to receive, knowing it's a good gift from God? Your life is a gift. The sustaining of your life is a gift. It's not by chance or accident. It is from the goodness of God. There's also an important doctrine here that we should not forget. The world is ultimately, even though it is cursed in its present state, is ultimately all of creation is friendly to human beings. I want you to hear that statement again. Even though there is a curse upon creation, it frustrates us in the present. It is ultimately friendly. Now, the secular world does not believe this. The secular world does not believe ultimately that creation, all that is, is friendly. If you don't believe me, turn on National Geographic or Discover Channel or one of these channels and watch all the horrible scenarios they spin over and over how everything is hostile toward you. The earth belching up smoke and fire. All of Yellowstone National Park is one gigantic volcano and it will explode again and then they demonstrate how much life is going to be destroyed. And when that mountain falls in the sea in the Azores, it will create a mile-high tsunami that will hit the whole east coast of the United States and destroy everything. Not friendly. Not friendly. Or take the pagan. They're not always synonymous, the secularist and the pagan. The pagan who is always trying to appease 
and make things right with their offerings. I do believe that some of the extreme environmentalist movement is entirely pagan. It's always appeasing, just like the ancients did. The sacrifice happens to be people and jobs and on and on and on, but there is a kind of sacrifice being offered. We just have to go into our caves and lids and turn out the light. Fear reigns. Fear. Listen, there is a reason that Christianity started, started bigger than, no bigger than a man's hand. That's Elijah the prophet says. And it has spread through all the earth. It did so with confidence. Confident that the creation ultimately and finally finds its origin in God. And this is a place for people to live and move and have their being, to look to their maker and to worship him, to enjoy the good things of life. They had confidence, confidence to face the world regardless of the opposition. This is rooted in the doctrine of creation and, of course, in the recreation in Jesus Christ. Gilbert Murray a famous historian, gave us a, a wonderful explanation in a few words why paganism failed in the ancient world and Christianity succeeded. There was no reason from a historical, sociological standpoint for Christianity to succeed. It was just a little bitty movement in a sea of religions. Sometimes go and examine all of the religious expressions in Greek culture and in Roman culture. Many of them stronger than bigger than Christianity. They look like Hulk Hogan on the scene. And here was little Christianity. But those Christians had a worldview. And in that worldview they had confidence. And Murray says those giants failed in those days because they had a failure of nerve. To embrace life. And they shriveled up. Boy, isn't there a temptation today to be fearful? All the possibilities that can happen to you, you can lose your job, you can get sick, you can hear some terrible news in your family, you can be driving down the road as a woman did in Florida and plunge into a 20-foot sinkhole. You're driving on the road and that car may not stop behind you as I found out twice in the last two and a half years. A lot of things can go wrong. A lot of reason to be fearful. But what does Paul say? God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. This is the Christian worldview. It's a confident worldview. It embraces life. Because it believes finally and believes, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. That is why we are able to embrace the good things of life. That is why we want to correct the injustices. That's why we want to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. For we know it is in this arena finally that God has spoken yes to us in Christ.
all of this is lived out in the light of the resurrection of his son. The creed. Well, I'm not going to give up on the creed. And I'm, I'm here preaching this series to hope that you won't. That you will remember that there is one faith. And the Apostles' Creed is a great summary of that. There is one faith through all the ages. And when we use the creed in worship and confess our faith, we are confessing our faith with the saints of all ages. I think I know one hymn I once sung at my funeral. I have uh, three or four. I've thought about three or four hymns, five hymns in the hymn book. I go through. No, I think I'll choose this one. Then some later I'll, I'll choose another one. But I think there is one I've settled on. For all the saints. For all the saints. It's this creed that helps us to be for all the saints. And the fad today is to toss them aside. It's old school. We don't do that anymore. Oh, we don't do that anymore? My friend, we run a great risk when we lose touch with the one faith delivered unto the saints for all ages. We have a bequest that we're living off of. Uh, we didn't make it up in the modern day. It's been handed down to us. This faith, let us cherish it. Let us cherish God the Father Almighty, who made heaven and earth. Amen.